past few years, neurodiversity has emerged as an important element to consider when looking at inclusion. But what do we mean when we say neurodiversity? And could it be considered a superpower? This week, I speak to Ed Thompson, CEO of Optimize, about the benefits of a neurodiverse workforce and how we can make life easier for our neurodivergent colleagues. I also talk to Tim Cook, Sales Director of Cloud Voice at Colt, about his personal neurodiversity journey and how it's encouraged him to reflect on his previous experiences. Let's get the full picture. Ed, when we look at diversity and inclusion, we tend to look at race or gender and neurodiversity is more recently coming to the forefront of people's minds. So I want to start off speaking to you by asking, how do you define neurodiversity? Yeah, it's a good question and, de- and definitely the place to start. So neurodiversity is increasingly recognised as the infinite variety of neurocognition within human beings, essentially, in a nutshell, that we all have a different brain wiring. We all have different ways of processing information, uh, experiencing the world as a result of communicating and of problem solving. And so neurodiversity at its heart is simply a human fact in the same way that biodiversity is a a fact of the natural world and one that we all learn about, you know, in geography class uh, Mm -hmm. at school. Now, neurodiversity is often taken to, to be Uh, more about people who are neurodistinct. And so within that human spectrum of neurodiversity, uh, there are people with less common traits uh, and thinking styles uh, who can struggle because of some of the norms of the neuromajority, i.e. the perhaps sort of four in five people who, who aren't neurodivergent or neurodistinct. And so you have these multiple overlapping neuro identity groups, people like autistic people, dyslexic people, uh, and ADHDers, who can have these different combinations of traits and who can be disadvantaged by, again, practices, processes, and norms defaulting to the preferences of the neurotypicals. So when we talk about neurodiversity at work, we're sort of talking about these two different levels. We're talking about how do we better include and, and, and maximize the potential of these people within these particular groups. But we're also talking about something quite universal. And I think that's something that's, that's a little different from other diversity topics. We're talking about something ultimately that you know everybody can be a part of. Mm, definitely. And I think there's a lot more depth to it than just speaking about, say, race or gender when you speak about inclusion. And it's really, really fascinating and interesting to learn more about neurodiversity and how workplaces need to be a lot more inclusive and educate themselves a bit more about this topic. And this is obviously something that you have you have a passion for. And from that passion, you founded Optimize over four years ago. So can you give us a brief explanation of what Optimize do and why you started? Sure. So we're a corporate training company just focused on neurodiversity at work. So I think that already makes us uh, quite unique. We have an online training platform and we use that to facilitate neurodiversity at work programs of our clients. And those clients have included companies like Deloitte, Salesforce, Intel, Google uh, and JP Morgan. I started Optimize Uh, actually with a slightly different story uh, than a lot of uh, founders in this area, particularly founders of nonprofits, 
who often have a, a very direct personal uh, connection to being neurodivergent or neurodistinct themselves. Perhaps they are themselves, mm -hmm. or perhaps it's a family member. My background is actually in business. I was in private equity and then on the leadership team of a tech company in London. And I gravitated to people related work because of its strategic importance to that company. And I think that's a, a trend we've seen over the last five to 10 years that what have been HR priorities, things like diversity, talent sourcing, leadership, uh, innovation have become CEO priorities. So I began to build talent acquisition programs in the tech sector in London, notably helping to create a, an apprenticeship program in London that helps connect young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, but who've grown up with tech skills, with jobs in the very talent hungry tech sector. And these are people who you know, wouldn't typically have those opportunities or, or, or see those opportunities or be able to realize them through kind of conventional you know, talent sourcing uh, paths. It was through that that I had uh, that I actually ended up getting involved in in the neurodiversity world and community through a, a family member who's been a long time neurodiversity advocate, and she suggested that I sort of turn my attention to this field. And I think she saw the parallel of the need to make sure that neurodivergent, neurodistinct people are are included in the workforce, sort of similar to some of the stuff that I've done with, with these apprenticeship programs. And I certainly saw that as well. And, and you know, the more I got involved in this community, the more clear it was that mm. this was a huge demographic that had been incredibly poorly hired uh, and included by organizations. And that there was a huge upside here if, if that were to change, you know, not just for organizations to, to find talent, but actually also for organizations to build teams of people, you know, who literally think differently. We know from the diversity business case as a whole that that's you know, really founded on this idea of diversity of thought. If we get people who think differently in a room, then you know, good things happen. And I saw this as not just a way to help sort of answer that, that talent shortage, particularly in tech, but, but beyond as well, but also ultimately just to build you know, more effective and more innovative teams. And of course, with a knock-on social impact through doing that. And you mentioned diversity of thought in your ebook, and it said a significant contributing factor to true diversity of thought that has often been overlooked is neurodiversity. So I'm interested to know why do you think that neurodiversity and something that is so important for companies to open their eyes and, and educate themselves on, why do you think it's been so overlooked? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, and, and you know, I'm writing a book at the moment to, to, to help answer that question, uh, amongst others. You know, I, I think you've got sort of uh, two strands uh, of thinking in the world that are only recently sort of coming together. And so, you know, until recently, we haven't had this terminology to think about these, you know, real cognitive differences um, mm. in the population. Again, you know, we all understand biodiversity, but we just, you know, you we'll ask people in corporate America or, or, or the UK uh, about the term neurodiversity and you know many people simply don't know what it means. So we just we don't have a lexicon of, of really appreciating and acknowledging um, our differences. And of course, you know, businesses exist in the kind of cultural milieu uh, you know, of their society. And if that society doesn't really acknowledge and accept neurodiversity in all its sort of wonderful variation and instead you know has a sort of more negative medicalized framing 
of, of people with some of these less common styles, then I think you're, you're not going to see those businesses necessarily uh, really, you know, have a consciousness of, of, of how do we uh, improve and how do we become more inclusive to actually harness all of these different thinking styles. Now, of course, you know, the term is, is, is new sort of as a whole in, in human history, but, you know, there have been people for the last 20, 25 years who've realized this and who've advocated very hard uh, you know, to change the world and to give us these terms. And I think that's one strand. And then on the other on the other side, and this is interesting, businesses have equally for decades, I think, recognized to some degree that they have people who are different and that that's a good thing. And you look at Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. and that sort of uh, profile test. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement. I would say it doesn't necessarily go far enough. But it's an acknowledgement that, you know, we do have different types of thinkers and, and, and isn't that a good thing? And if we start to acknowledge and recognize that, you know, maybe we can collaborate more effectively and, you know, and perform better. But I think that hasn't you know gone to that sort of next level of, of really acknowledging, you, again, we all have these differences in just how we process information, how we communicate, you know, can we turn that into something more actionable to, to really ensure that we are not unintentionally excluding talent who think in certain ways and to make sure that we're optimizing the, you know, the way that we work. And so I think it's only recently, you know, that those two things are coming together. And, you know, that's what's so exciting, I think, about neurodiversity uh, at work at the moment, that, that there's so much potential and it's so belated that, that this is all happening. 100%. And I think when we spoke previously, I said that if you have a company filled with people who all think the same, that are all exactly the same, then you're going to firstly have a very boring company, but also they're only going to be very limited in terms of their imagination, their creativity, where they can take the company and where they can grow. And on your blog at Optimizer's website, um, I recently saw that you shared a statistic that companies with high levels of diversity are 70% more likely to report that their firm captured a new market in the past year. That's so incredible that people... I don't think that's something that people really realize that actually having more of an inclusive workforce not only is more inclusive and better for the employee well-being um, but it also can help you generate new revenue and, and access new markets that you might not have been able to do otherwise. I, I actually think that a lot of people and, and you know a lot of managers in the corporate world do recognize that but they don't necessarily sort of join the dots. We've interviewed mm. people and we'll say to them, you know, do you know about neurodiversity and, as it were, do you care about it? And most of the time they'll say no. Um, but if you ask a manager, you know, do you want a team with different perspectives, uh, different viewpoints to help you perform better? They'll say, yeah, of course, you know, that's what we're trying to achieve. So I think I think there's yeah. a sort of line where, the, you know, where the dots haven't been um, haven't been linked. Um, and I think that the. The importance of this is 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 so clear in the 21st century, you know, where not only are businesses going to continue to face sort of, you know, unforeseen challenges like the COVID crisis, but, you know, we know technology is moving at an unprecedented rate. We know that's a, a huge opportunity for teams of diverse minds to innovate and be successful and profitable. We also know that's a, a huge risk for, for those teams that don't, you know, the, the lifespan of companies has has plummeted over the last 50 or 60 years. Now it's you know, down to about 15 years. So, you know, as a business, I don't think you can simply cruise, you know, with a bunch of generalists whose, mm. whose priority is, you know, is not rocking the boat. And 
if I may, there's a, there's a little story here from uh, one organization, EY, which I think really sort of points to, to, to the value here. Uh, they were uh, facing some challenges uh, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, needing to manage um, questions around insurance claims uh, from both some of their staff and some of their clients. Now, this was a challenge that they, you know, they weren't fully prepared for. What they were able to do was put together a deliberately neurodiverse team to solve this problem. They have a neurodiversity hiring program. They used some of the folks that they'd hired on that program, as well as some other people in the firm, and, and sort of gave them this problem. And that team was able to solve that problem, coming up with a, a very elegant sort of tech solution to, to manage those queries and, and, and to support their clients and to support their employees. And you know, to me, that's a sort of a, a micro but very tangible example of that sort of neurodiversity at work in action. You know, to yeah. me, that's how organisations are going to be successful. Uh, in the future. That is so incredible. And I think what you said there, that companies haven't been able to join the dots, I think that's probably due to lack of education around this topic and lack of discussing it so openly, which is why I think it's so brilliant to speak to you today. At Optimize, you help companies build neurodiversity programs and you've worked with some huge companies. And for people listening who would like to start a neurodiversity program, aside from getting in touch with yourself and working with Optimize, not trying to take business away from your company, but what tips and advice would you give to build a successful one? I think the most important thing, and, and we've seen this from, again, from our focus groups, is, is culture. And so, you know, what are the reasons that we might not, you know, embrace and include uh, people who think differently? And I think culture really is, is the most important. Although we've talked about hiring, we know that there's that, that there can be these kind of what we call boulders in the road in the hiring process. The biggest challenge and complaint that we've seen, and an absolutely justifiable complaint we've seen is, is or, or concern that we've seen is, is people just feeling like, you know, they're not understood, they're not, or they're not going to be understood, they're not going to be valued, you know, for, for, for being different. I think we too often have cultures where we, we don't have a, an openness to neurodiversity. And again, also the universality of neurodiversity, not just that we might have people who are neurodistinct, but actually, again, we all have these different preferences. I think we, we just don't have that culture. So I think that's the, 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 the first and the most important thing to pursue uh, is changing that. So, you know, most of our clients would start with pretty widespread, but, but also quite sort of light touch awareness training that just helps to change that culture that gives us that lexicon. We talked about language so we can talk about neurodiversity that that really wakes people up who, who, who aren't thinking about neurodiversity in their work. That again, you know, any manager is managing a neurodiverse team, right? A, a team yeah. that, that, that has different approaches to communicating and problem solving and so on. But, you know, how often are they just assuming that everyone's the same and, and, and assuming that everybody wants to get instructions in the same way or, you know, everybody wants to problem solve in front of the whiteboard um, you know, under time pressure, you know, or, or whatever, as well as uh, a wake up to the reality that, you know, organizations have, uh, organizations are neurodiverse, but have many neurodistinct thinkers in them already. And again, you know, people who who, who aren't familiar with that or, or aren't aware of it, I think can it can be very powerful to, to sort of make them realize that, you know, they're working with or managing or, or being managed by or buying from or selling to people who are neurodistinct every day. I think that that is is a very very powerful switch to go from the, the ignorance of neurodiversity at the moment 
to that awareness and enthusiasm is 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 the most powerful place to start and then in our methodology we would typically get on to you know the specifics the more tactical specifics of you know okay let's think about how we hire let's let's go deeper with your managers let's think about how we manage let's look with the hr teams about how we build processes or environments and ultimately sort of get to you know get to sort of great through that process and then eventually go to optimize and get you guys to help them with their <laughs> their program. Well, I think yeah, I think we can. I think we can help you know <laughs> through, through that through that whole journey. And I think part of it is is you know it's not what and, and what's powerful is it's not just about some of the best practices, but you know what mm. we do. And I've I've mentioned our focus groups a, a number of times. You know what we do is is really try to capture the voice of. The neurodistinct community across the world and then reflect that in our training because i think it's it, it's genuinely powerful in terms of building empathy and and changing people's perspectives it's not just you know you might disadvantage this demographic if you do this you're hearing it from the horse's mouth that you know yeah. somebody who's very talented um perhaps missed out on employment but because of a you know a simple to re- simple to remove step in in the hiring process that you know we don't have to make that mistake Yeah, definitely. And Ed, a lot of us are speaking at the moment about working from home because everybody is stuck indoors because of COVID-19. And we have seen some people really, really thrive from working from home and some really struggling. And I personally find it really difficult because I am struggling to switch off. I find myself working on my laptop at 10 o'clock at night whilst watching Queer Eye on Netflix. (laughs) Um, But the difficulties of working from home could be even more heightened for people within the neuroidentity group. So what advice would you give on how they can adjust and how their employees can help them I, I yeah I think that this is this has actually been a a strangely positive um you know development of what's obviously been a horrendous um global experience of the COVID-19 crisis which is that with this change and upheaval um of corporate workforces and and, and that significant shift to working from home there's this new focus on or, or greater focus on, on employee well-being, and I think that's what we want to, you know, harness and, and and leverage here. So, as with when everybody worked in an office, you know, let's not assume that everybody is necessarily optimally comfortable and productive uh, at home with their existing, you know, technology or with our existing processes. So, I would say having again having an openness to 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 that sort of conversation is 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 very powerful and not having that conversation as a one off and and you know, I suppose we could sort of make the parallel here with onboarding you know we don't want to onboard people whether they're going to work remotely or or work in an office and and sort of check on their comfort at work once and say as it were okay have you got everything you need all right great you know let's talk in and your review in 6 months but actually having this more sort of fluid and and consistent discussion about uh, comfort at work and so an obvious example there would be on communication preferences when everybody is suddenly working from home you know how are we going to communicate and actually as a manager having a conversation with a, a direct report on on what their preference would be and then as a team having a a sort of team audit on communication channels you know maybe there's there's six or seven ways that we're all communicating at the moment you know maybe it's email maybe it's a couple mm. of different uh, instant message clients some people are calling each other with zooming you know how do we want to do that 
and actually, you know, does anybody have a particularly strong preference one way or the other? And, and, and trying to come to a sort of team consensus, but that also recognises, you know, individual strengths and preferences. I think the last point about remote working is, you know, not to make assumptions that necessarily everybody is comfortable and productive. And, and, and something we've seen is that it can be the, the folks who are in the office, everyone think, oh, you know, they'd be, they'd be fine working from home who can, who can struggle. Uh, and sometimes, yeah. you know, the, the opposite uh, as well. I think a common theme of this whole chat today has been just speaking about it and feeling comfortable to open up and to speak to your colleagues and, and tell them where you feel comfortable and uncomfortable. Ed, you've had a really impressive career and you've helped so many different companies. What is your proudest moment so far? I think, you know, at Optimize, we, because a lot of what we do is working with a client and, and, and training, we don't necessarily see the uh, the individual stories, the individual stories of impact uh, that I saw back when I was building the apprenticeship programs that I that I mentioned. And so, it was actually speaking at an American university, and I was speaking after uh, a parent of uh, a guy who'd been to that university, who then had a, a terrible struggle finding employment despite being a very smart computer science graduate who's autistic and has his own way of communicating and interacting with people and, and, and had really struggled with, with, with interview processes and, and you know, a, a certain amount of ignorance and, and, and lack of understanding of, of and a lack of ability really to, to see his true potential. Um, mm. This parent described both the, 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 the really awful experiences that, that he and their family had had and he'd faced you know, discrimination at a, a, a number of tech jobs and found himself unemployed you know, four or five years later. But contrasting that with actually getting hired at Microsoft on their autism hiring program, and I think my you know my ears sort of perked up at at, at that point because we had been working with Microsoft and realizing that the manager who had successfully hired this parent's son Blake had taken the training that we'd provided to Microsoft uh, at oh, wow. was a uh, was a was a really great moment to to sort of you know tie the. Uh, the, the circles together and, and, and see that, you know, we were, we were making a human impact uh, as well as a business impact. But um, the problem really was that following a very, you know, emotive uh, parents talk was it was a was really an uphill task. And so the I, I, I struggled with my own presentation much as I, uh, <laughs> much as I was happy to hear that, hear that story. It's always the way, isn't it? When somebody is incredible and speaks before you and you're like, how am I going to follow that? <laughs> but it's incredible yeah. to see that Optimize help Microsoft. And I know you said previously you didn't see that link when you were um, actually at the talk, but it's great for you to see how your hard work is actually paying off and, and really affecting and helping people in a positive way. So a really, really great moment to share. So thank you for sharing that story with us. Tim, you only realised at the age of 30 that you were dyslexic. So I'd love if you can tell us the story of how you came to this realisation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a, an interesting story because um, in my sort of school career and so forth, I, I knew I was slightly you know, different in the way that I learned. But uh, it was really exposed at Colt during a, um, a sales training course. It lasted for a week. It was highly focused. Um, it was a bit of a, a crucible, a melting pot of, you know, having to do 
uh, fast activity, quick presentations, whilst being put under a microscope of uh, intense pressure as well. And during that uh, process, I found it really very, very uh, unpleasant. Uh, I found mm -hmm. that I wasn't learning, I wasn't enjoying it. I felt that the, the course was not aligned to the way that I thought. Uh, and at the end of it, the, the feedback from the two trainers uh, was, was quite crushing. And uh, I felt that it wasn't a fair reflection of myself. And uh, I sat down with my, my line manager after that course and said, look, that was a, a, an awful experience. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't see the value in it. And he, he goes, well, what do you think um, the reasons for, for this is? And I say, well, it just doesn't align uh, to the way that I learn. And it didn't mm -hmm. really align to the modern concepts of people learning best uh, in certain environments, which, you know, uh, sort of adapted to learning rather than putting people yeah. under pressure. If people are under pressure, they react in a different way uh, to under a, a learning course. So anyway, um, I spoke with the, the line manager and he said, do, do you think you, you potentially could be dyslexic? Uh, I've looked at your notes during the course and, you know, uh, that, that might be uh, an issue there. I said, look, quite possibly my, my spelling is utterly dreadful and um, <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really quite, quite awful. And taking notes, uh, it was quite difficult for me during that process, process of being under pressure. So Colt paid for a evaluation of my, my dyslexia. Uh, I went away to, to have this evaluation done and it came back very, very clearly that I was dyslexic. And um, at that point, it sort of put a, you know, a sort of a light onto my schooling and my why I probably struggled a little bit more at school uh, than other people did. But at the end of the day, I was uh, bright enough to be able to get a, a good raft of GCSEs, A-levels and go to university. But there was always a problem with the, the underlying transfer of uh, information that sat in my head uh, through, through, through my body and out of a pen onto a piece of paper. And, you know, if, if things uh, were stressful and so forth, I ended up, you know, the, the stuff that was written down was, was of, of virtually no use at all. But having that diagnosis of the dyslexia allowed me to step back and really think about how do I learn and mm. what are the, the processes of learning for dyslexic people? So, yeah, it was an interesting time and I was really pleased that my boss supported me. Yeah. That is so brilliant that they gave you that support and yeah, let you get that test and kind of thought, okay, let's get down to the crooks of why you're struggling instead of just sweeping it under the rug. And and I think that's something that is becoming so much more prevalent now is that neurodiversity is something that is only really recently started to be discussed so openly. And I think back in the day where people had learning difficulties, it was just kind of just looked at that they weren't the brightest person in the class. And you wrote a humans of cult article and you said there are a lot of us dyslexics out there but it really doesn't have to hold you back and I think mm. that's so incredible because I myself am actually dyslexic and I really struggle with reading and processing that information as quickly as say my peers or or my sister did so I always thought that there was something wrong with me but when you mm. realize that it's because you're dyslexic and you've just got to kind of approach learning in a different way, then you can start to to understand how you learn best. But why do you think it is something that growing up you never realized you had? And why do you feel that nobody really spoke about it? 
growing up in the 70s was a uh, you know uh, and 80s was a, a very very different time that it is now the sort of labels probably were there but you know they just weren't applied uh, mm. or recognized and i think that the this the spectrum that you look at in terms of neurodiversity it was either you were um if, if you've got the center being the norm and the edges uh, at each end being the the outliers they probably focus just very at the edges and dyslexia is probably somewhere between between the sort of the center and the edge of those non-neurotypical um, uh, uh, situations and i just think it wasn't really needed to be labeled at that point yeah uh, because there was just one structure as mm. time's gone on, the, the 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 understanding and you know academia and so forth have realised that you know this whole spectrum. There are great capabilities within that spectrum, and you know the the dyslexia and spelling and so forth. With with modern technology, you know every time I misspell something now, there's a great red line that comes underneath it, which explains that you know I spelled it incorrectly. If that didn't appear, probably I might not be able to see it, but it now masks a little bit, you know, the the dyslexia for people. Uh, so people probably don't realize as much. But when you're handwriting uh, your your essays back in the day, it was very, very visible. Yeah. Mm. Um, in terms of, you know, the um, the modern world, you know, uh, the, the speech to text capabilities, uh, I think it's more about getting the the good stuff that's in your head out onto a page or onto a podcast rather than focusing on the the spelling of it it's more important about the idea rather than the the, the, the you know the <laughs> the grammar the spelling and the structure and with uh, speech to text these days it takes that away it does take that issue away for a lot of people yeah, no, definitely. And and why do you think it is so important to recognise neurodiversity when we are talking about inclusion in the workplace? I, I'm 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 not a hundred percent expert, uh, you know, as a psychologist or anything. But what I can see is that there are horses for courses, and there are some people that are absolutely excellent who are non-neurotypical at certain types of jobs. And there are companies that are out there that are helping people with non-neurotypical positions to find the right jobs that they excel at. Uh, you know, um, uh, a lot of coders, uh, for instance, will probably come from somewhere on, on the spectrum in terms of focus and numbers and so forth, but they might not have the best people skills. Yeah. So you wouldn't ask that type of person to, to go and become a, uh, you know, a, a, a salesperson who's having constant uh, interaction and persuading people uh, to do things uh, in, a, in a sales environment, you're probably going to have that person focusing on very detailed writing code uh, to do that. And that's probably a, a broad spectrum uh, of types of people. And um, I'm not saying that all, all coders are somewhere on the spectrum, but there is a sort of leaning towards that type of numbers and focus capability that would be there rather than being mm -hmm. highly personable. So um, I, I think that you can take um, a lot of the non-neurodiverse uh, workforce and look at them and say, well, there, there, there are clusters of um, capabilities within those people and you could apply them to certain types of jobs. I'm not saying that's prescriptive, but I think that that is 
something that um, you know is, is beneficial to the organization but also to the individual as well no it is so incredible and I think we need to talk about it a lot more and I read this incredible quote um, from Chrissy Levitt who is the CEO of Creative Conscience and she said growing up with that kind of brain I didn't understand the value of it but now I see it as a superpower the reason that it's valuable is because I see things in a different way and I'm interested to know how have you seen your dyslexia as a quote superpower in your career to getting to where you are today? <laughs> So um, th th there's a couple of things that I always think of is that um, with, my, with my dyslexia is that I'm highly verbally dexterous. So I can talk endlessly uh, on long and complicated <laughs> subjects in a, an interesting way, which is a skill set. But trying to get those words onto a page is, is my, my nemesis. So, mm -hmm. so that, that's a downside. But uh, a, a, another element is that because of having to work out processes of how I learn and how I become successful means that I've learned a lot of coping strategies and I've learned a lot of different ways to uh, think about things, how to observe things. Um, uh, my, my visual recall and uh, memory space for uh, directions and geographies and things like that is, 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 is very, very uh, well developed. Um, so there's certain things that come with my my dyslexia and my my neurodiversity that gives me advantages over uh, certain other people in terms of you know capabilities around speaking, uh, public speaking, uh, thought processes, and uh, the other thing is joining dots. Uh, all of these mm -hmm. sort of points of reference from my my different types of learning experience sometimes join together in these wonderful sort of little networks where I can see something that nobody else does. And that can give you those little bits of advantage or a little bit of a, an insight or a little bit of creativity that allows something to be improved upon. So there, there are those little things that uh, are my little superpowers uh, that uh, <laughs> work for me, yeah. That's a great way to see it. And I, yeah, I think you are right that you do have strengths where other people might have weaknesses. And that's why it is so important to hire a diverse workforce and not just hire mm. people that are all the same. And we have seen with companies recently who are hiring more inclusively and hiring a neurodivergent workforce as well, that they are actually starting to be successful because they have, as we said, superpowers where other people don't. What is your mm. view in, in hiring? hiring people who are neurodivergent um, and how do you think that it can benefit a business? Great question. So absolutely, my I would 100% agree with having a neurodivergent workforce. You know, looking at inclusion and diversity, uh, people who've had to struggle harder to get to a place because of uh, something in their life that has challenged them whether that be situational or, as we're talking about, non-neurodiverse, will give those people a certain edge of way of thinking and uh, sort of a metal to, to, to get on with whatever's put in front of them. Yeah, But there is also uh, the flip side, which is that if you're having a non-neuro... Uh, uh, 
a, a neurodiverse workforce, then you you probably have to have an understanding that sometimes those people will move outside of parameters and become um, potentially you know unhappier, quicker, quicker. But it's understanding that process and having the support mechanisms within the organisation to enable that creativity, but also have a culture of support around it to make sure that those parameters of success are understood. Yeah, it's so important to have that support um, around you in the workforce. And it sounds like you're definitely getting that support at Colt because they helped you uh, throughout this whole process and understanding that you are dyslexic, which is great for you to be able to progress and, and be successful to where you are today. Moving forward within the neurodiversity space, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are and where you feel that we can improve. Because when we spoke previously, you mentioned that your wife is working um, for an innovation company and helping people with their daily life and focusing on digital health. Do Mm. you think that's the future of where we can go to help people and be more accessible for people who are within neurodivergent groups? You know, at the end of the day, my you mentioned my wife's company. It's a digital health organisation. And uh, I also look at Microsoft in terms of a digital health organisation as well. And uh, just using those two, two organisations as sort of my uh, uh, benchmark yardstick and, you know, my understanding of how technology can improve the, 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 the life of people within work. Um, Microsoft are very much leading edge there. And in terms of all of their products and development it has to have an inclusivity and diversity element to it and Mm. if you look at the um, dictate feature on word or OneNote, you know i I sit there and i just chatter away to my machine and i create all of the, the the text and the content for all of my 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 speeches or my powerpoints or my sales presentations and now done verbally yeah and that's all been enabled by technology it's improved my speed it's improved my accuracy etc which improves my confidence at the end of the day i've created something uh, that you know i haven't struggled or labored over as much as i would have in the past which has then allowed me to focus on the delivery of the content rather than the creation of the content so all of these sort of uh, technology stacks even though you wouldn't think of microsoft as a digital health provider it is absolutely about inclusivity. Uh, for instance, the uh, the blur background on Microsoft Teams that you know you know most people thought that was to hide a messy bedroom or whatever it was uh, behind them. <laughs> oh, was, I thought was that not... that's what it was. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I've been it, using that this whole time. <laughs> I know, but uh, it was it was actually developed by a lady at Microsoft because uh, she was a lip reader, and uh, because right. she was lip reading what she didn't like was stuff in the background that moved that distracted her away from the focus on the face and okay. that's how it came into being not not the best messy bedroom filter so <laughs> so the, the, the these these sort of accessibility functions within microsoft have been exceptionally good uh, for people who have dyslexia or uh, you know visual impairment uh, and the way that they design uh, the products for the future always has this uh, inbuilt and embedded into the processes that they put there. Uh, my wife's organization is very much about trying to get people back into to work uh, and uh, supporting students at university that have autism and so forth like that uh, by creating an environment where they can build structure into their days where they know they have support. And if they go outside of the parameters of uh, you know their, their happiness and they start to 
to lock down because of it. They know that they have support within the application back to uh, a help desk that will get them back on track with their day. So I think that uh, the modern world is an amazing place. It has uh, the benefits of digital health. It obviously has the the downside of the the addiction of teenagers to to the mobile phone apps and clicking TikTok and so forth. But between <laughs> between the two, you know, the, the development of that technology is really showing some benefits on the digital health uh, side. And my final question for you, Ed, is since the full picture is all about bringing your full self to work, what is one thing that your co-workers don't know about you? Well, if I may, I've got a sort of a, a silly one, but then one also that I want to just tie back to, to to the topic. So I've always answered this question, and I don't know how if anyone in America would, would even know who this is, but I've always answered this question in, in the UK. I remember I had to do it at Oxford on my first day there, and we were all sort of all introducing ourselves. Uh, that I'm related or in, apparently related to Guy Fawkes and I and really once on a um I yeah, don't know how I don't know how true it is but I but I do remember an amusing moment uh, as a kid and being on you know probably as a 12 year old or something being on a, a school trip and we did a tour of the the House of Commons and you know one of my friends mentioned this to the tour guide and they were sort of joking about you know not letting me in and, and, and making me wait um, outside. Yeah, I was going to say, is that it something you want to admit? Amazing. Well, exactly. But I don't. I, I also don't know how, um, how how true it is. So various various family members are, you know, into that sort of genealogy thing. So I, I sort of have to follow up with them and check the veracity. But the the the, the serious one um, I wanted to mention is, um, and and again, you're tying it back to this topic, is that I have uh, quite. A, a significant sensory sensitivity to light. And I think the reason I have that is because I had quite a bad car accident and head injury. I'd never had that before, but you know, ever since then I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, you know, if I'm sitting in a restaurant and I have a, a bright light, you know, facing me or, or above my head, I'll ask to change places. Uh, I have to really get the lighting right in, in, in an office space that I work in. And the reason I say this is because, you know, I don't consider myself necessarily to be neurodivergent, even though I have you know, technically a, a sort of acquired neurodivergence in the sense that, you know, my, my, my brain is a little different to to how it was before the accident. But, you know, I'm somebody who would come across as, I think, a, you know, a white male neurotypical and therefore not somebody who, who necessarily would be a focus of comfort at work issues. But if, if I were, you know, working in, a, in, in an organisation and that organisation put me under the, the, the classic sort of office bright lights and never checked with me as to whether that would be, uh, you know, optimal for my work, you know, they wouldn't get the best ed and they would, you know, they would force me into either being uncomfortable or, or, or moving or, 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 you know, trying to, to, to possibly, you know, uncomfortably bring up that topic and, and explain that. And then obviously I'd be, I'd be worried about how that would, would necessarily go. So I think that, that lesson is, is, is really important again, that we don't want to make assumptions. Let's, let's recognize and, and, and remember that people are always our most expensive and important asset. And let's make an effort across the board to make sure that they can be comfortable and productive. I, I got diagnosed with um, 
uh, dyslexia at the age of, I think it was 33. And I just mentioned that uh, because of my son's ADHD diagnosis, is that at the age of 48, I've only just found out I've got ADHD. So I think oh, that, wow. you know, um, being honest about it is that that is uh, the net new thing, uh, the uh, the trials of Tim to get through. And I'll apply the same <laughs> process that I did before is getting to understand it, uh, knowing myself. Uh, it's shone a light back onto a, a lot of my school reports <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it explains a lot of stuff. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, life is a, a journey. You find out all these bumps in the road that you get and you just need to to learn and cope with them. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Full Picture. Do leave us a review and tell us what you learnt from this episode and subscribe to hear more. Next week, for the final episode of the season, we'll discuss the challenges and benefits of having multiple generations under one company roof. See you next time.